0: So I wanna go get ahead and start it. So greetings and welcome. My name is Tanisha Taylor and I am the Director of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at the Massachusetts Legal Assistance Corporation. And on behalf of the MLAC Board of Directors, Mala Rafiq, who is our Chair of our Board of Directors and our Executive Director, Lynn Parker and all of the MLAC staff, I am excited to welcome you on this 21st day of July to MLAC's first virtual diversity, equity, and inclusion professional development conference. With approximately 300 people in attendance, we have a tremendous conference lined up for you over the next three days. Before I begin and to kind of walk us through what the program, what the program is going to look like for the next three days, and before I turn it over to the chair of our board of directors, Mala Rafiq, I just wanted to give a very extra special thank you to our conference co-sponsors, the Boston Bar Association and the Boston Bar Foundation and its Beacon Fund. I wanna give a special thank you to three BBA staff, Solana, Shanae, and Daniel. You're gonna see them around over the next three days, popping in here and there. They are the masterminds behind the website and all of the technical pieces. We would not be able to pull this off remotely without them. And so Solana, Shanae, and Daniel, thank you, thank you, thank you. And please extend a warm thank you to your board of directors, and your executive director, Richard Page Jr., for the BBA's unwavering commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and for creating a structure that gives voice to the experiences of attorneys and other staff of color and other diverse attorneys throughout the city of Boston. Now I'm gonna turn it over to the chair of MLAC's board of directors, Mala Rafiq, so that she may offer a few welcoming remarks. Off to you, Mala. Thank you, Tanisha, um, and thank you all. So on behalf of MLAC, I wanted to just thank you all for attending this three-day conference. And to those of you presenting, thank you so much for giving so generously of your time. The racial and ethnic disparities in the institutions and symptoms essential to the lives of the individuals we serve are enormous. We must consciously confront these disparities. We have an obligation to do so. This conference is about doing just that. Adopting a race conscious approach to our advocacy takes work, but as advocates, we must provide a voice, a loud voice to those we serve, for those we serve, whose voices have for too long been silenced. So thank you for being here and thank you for participating in this conference. I'm gonna turn it back to you, Tanisha. Thank you, Mala. So the title of this conference, as kind of Mahler talked about in her introduction, is it's time, centering anti-racism and civil legal aid, successes, challenges, and next steps. And that means that we are going to discuss race, we're gonna talk about racial injustice, and this can be challenging. However, what we've learned is that because of the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and the rise in anti-Asian hate, in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis, We were left with a dual pandemic that turned our world upside down. And unfortunately, we aren't going back to the way things used to be. This is the world that we're living in and we have to figure out how do we move forward from here? How do we celebrate the successes while also addressing and working intentionally to overcome the challenges presented by race and the racial injustice that we experienced and witnessed this year. How do we overcome it? How do we celebrate the successes? And how do we? How does it shape, how does this new reality shape the work that we do in legal aid and in the legal field? So over the next three days, our goal is to explore these questions in a real and authentic way, to have some real conversation um, because it's time. It's time for us to start having some real dialogue some real conversation, some real talk. So we're gonna hear from real people. We're gonna hear from activists working on the ground. We're gonna hear from um, folks from their lived experiences and how this is impacting them. And some folks may have a call to action to legal aid. We're gonna hear from staff, from our grantees, from some of our grantee organizations, because what better way to discuss and learn about successes by then learning from that from within. And we're gonna hear from other legal aid organizations and how they've been able to shift the, the work that they do to include a more racial justice lens. And in addition to having these hard conversations, we've built in some time for fun and rejuvenation. So we encourage you to stick around for a while, stick around throughout the di- three days, come to the yoga session on Wednesday morning, and then we'll have someone again come back on Thursday afternoon. Rachel, we love her, she's great. Join her yoga sessions. We also, on Thursday morning, we're gonna close with a show-stopping performance by Joe Camera um, from Mali. Drummond, he's a drummer and he's a dancer. And also we have a special feature from MLAC's very own, Danny, and she's gonna do a, a drink demonstration for us at the end of the conference. So we want you to stick around. We want you to have some fun. We want you to join in. We want you to participate. We want you to lean into com- uncomfort and really um, do, do give, it, give it your all, really lean into discomfort and also take some time to connect and network with folks. Before we, I might introduce our keynote, I wanted to provide a few more special thank yous. One, I wanted to provide a special thank you to Georgia, who's the executive director of MLRI, and also Jackie, the executive director of GBLS. We really were intentional this year about partnering together really having frequent conversations about the conferences hosted by MCLE and also the conference hosted by MLAC. And so I wanna thank them personally for their partnership throughout this year. I also wanna thank Leah Granham. You all have seen her name in, name in emails. She's been on trainings with me She's not here today because she has started her co-op experience at Northeastern. But I really just wanna thank her publicly for walking side by side with me during throughout the planning process. She's still emailing people now about different things that we're trying to, you know, just trying to um, put together and tie up the loose ends right now as we speak, as I'm speaking. So I just wanna thank her publicly for her dedication and her commitment and for really um, partnering me with, on this with me. And also I wanna thank the MLAC staff. Um, We had a very small DEI conference planning committee. We met weekly for the past couple of months. Um, Grace, Danny, Tenzin, Michelle, and also Evan, although he's no longer a staff member at MLAC, I still wanna thank him publicly um, for the work that he put in at the very beginning of the planning process. This work is teamwork. You can't do it alone. It does really take a village. And so I wanna say thank you to the folks in the village that helped us pull this off. So what we're gonna do now is actually before I introduce Kim Jones, I wanna go ahead and actually just walk us through the agenda for the next three days so that folks have a sense of how we're gonna make our way through the, this virtual conference over the next three three days. Um, so Tenzin's gonna help me share the screen. All righty. So it's time, centering anti-racism and civil legal aid, successes, challenges, and next steps. So this, the website really should be your virtual guide throughout the weekend. We are updating this frequently. And so any information that you need, you should be able to find it here on the website. Again, special thank you to the BBA and its staff, um, in particular, Daniel, Shanae, and Solana for pulling this all together. Today is our opening, and so we're going to hear from our keynote in just a moment. And then what we're going to do is after the keynote and on each of the days for the morning sessions, we'll have a networking and informal optional networking opportunity. So Kimberly is going to join us for the networking opportunity for lunch today. And that will be an opportunity for people to have a chance to ask more, to ask questions and have more of an up-close and personal experience and interaction with Kimberly this morning. And we've tried to do that for each of the days. After the networking sessions, we're going to start our afternoon sessions from 1 to two forty five, And what we're going to hear from today are two success models. One from an attorney from Prisoners Legal Services who um, participated in a racial justice institute uh, sponsored by the Shriver and really talking about Um, the successes with that and some challenges as well, and how that model is empowering for attorneys of color. Then we're also gonna hear from folks from health law advocates that really this year really did an amazing job at starting and building their DEI program from the ground up. So if you're at an organization or a nonprofit or office that's really like, how do we get started? What do we do? What do we need to do to kick this off and get it off the ground? That would be a great workshop for you to attend. Moving on to day two. So day two is going to be in the challenges bucket. Again, wake up with some yoga. Grab a a, a towel, whatever you have. Find a quiet spot in any space in your space and join us for yoga wake up from 9 to 945. I guarantee you're going to love it. Also, I wanted to say that all the sessions are going to be recorded. So if there's something that you wanna return to or go back to, and if you have folks in your office or colleagues or friends that weren't able to make it, all the sessions will be recorded. So tomorrow we're gonna have, we're gonna talk a little bit about the challenges and how to also some tools for overcoming those challenges. We're gonna, there's a morning session. It's gonna look at um, the evolving role of legal aid in addressing systemic racism. And also a session that's going to be ta- that's going to talk a little bit about more a little bit more about Black women and how we can envision a freedom a, a future where Black women aren't seen as angry and as unwhole. Again, this website should be your guide throughout the three days. We're gonna have we're gonna model the networking lunch model as we've done day one, and there are gonna be two opportunities to have more conversation with the morning presenters. And then the afternoon, we're actually gonna go ahead and have um, one presenter, uh, the 10s across the board as a webinar style. And then the dismantling the dominant culture is actually going to be on Thursday, but we'll update that a little bit later, but that was a last minute change to the schedule. So webinar style for um, the 10s across the board which really is, a, I think a good one to be a webinar style because what we know is that um, trans folk, and especially trans um, bipoc folk um, are facing challenges um, in ways that we can do more of, I more to 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 overcome and more to um, facing challenges that I think have been overlooked in our communities. And we were reminded this year when um, a transgender, Woman was murdered in our backyard earlier this year. So I think that's a really important workshop and we'll have that webinar style. Moving on to the last day, the final day. Um, we're gonna actually close with a keynote speaker in the morning, Gilly Seagull, who actually works very closely with our keynote Kimberly Jones, who we'll hear for and hear from in just a moment. And then again, we're gonna have some fun. It's all about the balance, you know, balancing some tough conversations with joy right and so we're going to close also with a performance an African drumming and dancing performance we invited him to perform for us at MLAC and it was absolutely amazing so you don't want to miss him so again stick around don't sign out early come back for the closing and come back for the closing performance then we'll have a lunch break I think actually Gilly is going to join us for the lunch break for a half an hour. So we'll make sure we're up da- update that. Again, we're gonna be updating this website throughout the three days. So make sure that you check it frequently. And then in the afternoon, we're actually gonna have those three options, the one on white supremacy. And again, we have to name these things, right? It's time for us to have real conversation about some of the things that we have, we haven't wanted to talk about in the past because the world has changed and we're not going back. So we're gonna talk about white supremacy culture. And we're going to um, have two kind of conversations on Thursday, one from a legal services organization moderated by, again, our very own Wayona Nelson Davies. She's going to moderate that conversation um, and talk with folks from a legal services organization where they really intentionally have tried to do the shift the way they do their work and have put more of a racial justice lens on their work. And then we're also gonna have the pleasure to hear from Pat Swansea. And many of you know Pat Swansea, who is um, the director of program monitoring and Evaluation at the Massachusetts Legal Assistance Corporation, has been has worked in this community for a really long time, um, very well respected. And so we'll have the privilege actually to hear from her and hear some of her advice as long as as well as advice from Bethia Carter on kind of how they think that legal services um, could potentially shift and respond to this new world that we're in. We also added an exclusive session for executive directors and senior leaders at our grantee organizations that's really going to focus on kind of the HR piece and creating anti-racist employment practices. So if you have not heard from me and you have signed up, shoot me an email, let me know but this is a sign-up opportunity. It's not open to everyone. And this is also going to be the first step in a longer ongoing conversation with these particular folks around the HR piece. And so that really concludes the agenda. And um, kind of, I just wanted to make sure that everyone—it's like kind of if we were physical, like we'd walk through and give you instructions on like how to get through the space, how to get to the bathroom, where to find something to eat. So this is a similar thing. Like how this is your this is your guide um, throughout the three days, and you should really just utilize this um, website to um, figure out kind of what's going on or what's next. Okay. Um, So I think I will conclude there. And I see that our keynote speaker is here, which I'm really excited to have her today. And so I'm gonna go ahead now and introduce our keynote speaker, Kimberly Latrice Jones, and then following my introduction of her, the next voice that you hear will be the voice of Kimberly Latrice Jones. So Kimberly Latrice Jones is an American author and filmmaker known for the viral video, How Can We Win?, published during the George Floyd protests. In this seven-minute video, Kim uses a monopoly analogy to explain the history of racism and its impact on Black Americans. It went viral and was shared by Trevor Noah, LeBron James, Madonna, and more. Kim's literary roots run deep. She served on the selection committee for Library of Congress's 2016 to 2017 National Ambassador for Young People's Literature. She also served on the 2015 Children's Choice uh, Illustrator Committee for the Children's Book Council and the advisory board that created the creative and innovative education master's degree program at Georgia State University. She has been featured in Miss Magazine, Seventeen, Pace Magazine, Bustle, Hello, Giggles, Booklist, Publishers Weekly, School Library Journal, and was a book Brahmin in an issue of Self Awareness. Kim received one of the inaugural James Patterson Holiday Bookseller Bonus Grants while working at the famous children's bookstore, Little Shop of Stories. Most recently, Kim's best-selling novel, "I'm Not Dying with You Con- Tonight." co-authored with Gilly Segal, who will be our closing speaker, was nominated for an NAACP Image Award, a Georgia Author of the Year Award, and the Sybil's Awards. I'm Not Dying With You Tonight was selected as the September 2019 book club pick for the Bonds and Noble YA Book Club in Overdrive's big library read. Kim resides in Atlanta and is the proud mother of a gifted boy she lives for wigs and nail art, I do too. As her style icons are Dolly Parton, Shaka Khan and Diana Ross. So without further ado, I would like to hand over the mic to Kimberly Latrice Jones.
1: Good morning. Good morning. How are you guys this morning? We have the um,
0: chat. We have the, um, everyone's muted. So um I'ma speak for
1: everyone and say we're all doing great and very awesome. happy to see you. <laughs> awesome. I think I, I I'm I so apologize for being late. I think I had my wires crossed. I was thinking that I was doing the keynote at noon and then I was um just listening that this morning. <laughs> no, that's okay, Kim. We're totally fine. We're just we're happy that you're here. Okay. All right. So first of all, I just wanna say I really am you know, grateful and happy to be here with you guys today. Um, I feel like the work that you guys are doing is super important, um, and so it is It is my pleasure and honor to be here with you this morning as you guys continue on your journey um, to grow in this work that you do, which I think is key and critical to the space that we're in right now, especially at a time when we're having lots of very difficult conversations and we have a nation that is unfortunately um, divided. And I think that part of where the division has entered the room it is in the legal system and what that, how that legal system has impacted marginalized groups specifically as I speak about the African-American community, um, but how it has a ripple effect throughout all of the modalities that participate in white supremacy um, and the continued oppression of marginalized people of color. Um, and again, with that, I speak not just African-American people but marginalized people um, across the nation. I think one of the things that we have to remember is that there is an extreme economic component to the legal system. And what that economic component does, it allows for the system to be abusive in a way to people that, um, you know, if I was five years old and in kindergarten, I'd say just isn't fair. And the fact that we do not make a connection between economic disparagement and the legal system is probably one of the biggest problems. And so with that, what I'll say is we have to, we have to We have to really think about all of the tiers in which it is gonna require to fix this problem. We really have to think about all of the ways in which the puzzle pieces match up and connect. One of the stories that I love to tell people when I'm on the front lines is, I want you to think about a young mother. A young mother who is working a minimum wage job and is living in an area that is not only a food desert, but a transportation desert. And so that the only way for her to get to that minimum wage job is via a motor vehicle whom she can afford the vehicle, barely, but can't afford the insurance, may be in a bind at the time of a registration fee and can't afford the registration fee, but still needs that vehicle in order to get back and forth to work. So now where does she find herself? Well, she finds herself driving around in a motor vehicle with no insurance and no registration. Now, you talk about how our communities are over-policed which people have an issue with. Um, They try to say that it's not, but it is because I have lived in marginalized communities, poor communities, the hood, the ghetto, the whatever you want to call it. And I have lived in wealthier neighborhoods and middle-class neighborhoods. And I'm telling you on Friday night, seeing police cars strategically paced throughout the neighborhood was something I only saw when I lived in marginalized communities. Now back to this young mother. She is riding through her community in the car she needs to get back to her minimum wage job, no insurance, no registration. And now we have police officers sitting in the over community that she is in because they say that's where the crime is, but we all know that poverty begets crime. And she gets pulled over. And now she has a ticket that she can't afford to pay because depending upon which state you're in, tickets for not having insurance can be as low as $400. They can be, I've seen them as high as $1,500. She can't pay the ticket. And I know that here in Georgia, that now means that she has to go on probation until she can pay the ticket off. And she has to, during that probation, she has to pay monthly probation fees that are equivalent to what the insurance would be. So she couldn't pay the insurance and now she can't pay the probation fees. And what happens when you can't pay the probation fees? You go to jail. And I use this scenario because I want people to understand how poverty in these communities, when we talk about how they increase crime, but it also is a system that is a revolving door for the criminalization of people who aren't really criminals. We will not pass a $15 minimum wage, yet we have no empathy in terms of our legal system for the impoverished for the proletariat and we have a system that's so deeply rooted in economic abuse of the system that a single mother working a minimum wage job in a in a transportation desert can become a can be criminalized for said poverty when a traffic violation should not lead a road to prison, to jail. Yet it does. And the idea that people are incapable or have no desire whatever to look at these connections and make these connections to say, How can we do better as a nation to not use the judicial system as a way to handle things that are annoyances to us? Because you could be criminalized for lots of things that are merely annoyances to people around you. So, We also can look at how we have allowed companies like insurance companies to gouge prices also these same marginalized community where people are impoverished your insurance rates are higher. You make less money, but your insurance rates are higher in these communities. So why are we not making these connections? How are we not making these connections? And why is it inconvenient for people to make these connections? Well, the biggest reason why it's inconvenient for people to make these connections is because that is part of the white supremacist delusion. Part of what that delusion gives into is it is inconvenient for anyone else to release their privilege. Because we've created a narrative throughout the nation that allows you to really believe the false narrative that people in these marginalized communities are criminal and so they should be handled with a heavy hand. And what you're thinking about is you know, murderers and rapists and drug dealers, but you don't understand that this criminal Abuse is affecting young mothers, is affecting young men just starting out on their way. It's affecting young people who have not had access to the same resources as their middle-class counterparts to be set up to move forward. So then you have to ask yourself, what can we do? What can we do to assist in fixing this situation? What can we do in order to grow empathy, for people who find themselves in these situations? And what can we do to decriminalize things that should not be criminalized? Because I I can tell you myself that when I was a young mother and finding my own way and not in the privileged economic position that I find myself in now, I was a victim to that same system. And I think about how that affects our young people across the board, not even just in scenarios like that. How it affects our people across the board in the unforgiveness of their circumstances. You know, take, for example, a young Sean Carter or Jay Z. If he had found himself in a criminalized situation as 17-year-old Sean Carter, and the news had been allowed to loop his current standing in society at that moment, and let's say, God forbid, unfortunately, his life had been taken, The narrative that could have been painted, the narrative that could have been told about him the picture that could have been painted about him would have painted someone that would have allowed America to be very comfortable with his death. As they were with Trayvon Martin as they were with Mike Brown. But we watch courtroom after courtroom after courtroom conversation. Of young. White men who commit some of the most heinous atrocities that we've ever seen from mass shootings to rape, still being given the benefits of youthful ignorance where judges actually say due to their age and the potentiality of their future that they are going to showcase some leniency and insert some resourceful programming for their rehabilitation. But I don't need to tell you guys about all of the studies that have been done that talk about how young black and brown people are viewed far past their age and are given three times harsher sentences than their white counterparts. Because we have allowed respectability politics to be the forefront of our communication. The saddest part about this is that this could have been rectified a very, very, very long time ago if we had allowed the system to do what it was supposed to do. My favorite era era of time that no one teaches, that no one talks about, is reconstruction. And the reason that I bring that up is because I think what we need right now is reconstruction 2.0. A lot of people are aware of, are familiar with Howard University and Washington DC. Um, But a lot of people don't know that it's named after General Oliver Howard, who was a union soldier, who was given control of the Freedmen's Bureau. The Freedmen's Bureau was a bureau that was supposed to support and assist formerly enslaved people into transitioning into society post, uh, post-Civil War Reconstruction. The amount of money they gave him for the budget for an entire year to run the Freedmen's Bureau was the same amount they spent in one week on the war. But what they did give him was land. I think it was something around 800,000 acres of land. And so I hear a lot of people say that we never got our 40 acres and a mule, but that's, it would be less sad if it were true that we never got it, but the truth is that we actually did get it because that is what General Oliver Howard was able to do with the Freedmen's Bureau was since he didn't have real money to run the organization and he did have land, he knew that giving formerly enslaved people land would make all the difference in the world for them. So he gave them 40 acres. And when he had one, he'd throw in a mule. And via that, they became, they began to thrive. It was not given out as widespread as one would hope, but it was given out to a large demographic of Southern formerly enslaved people. And they were able to thrive because they had been on plantations where they had been doing all of the work. So they had all of the skill set. They were blacksmiths and carpenters and understood plumbing. And so they were able to build thriving communities. But one of the things that people forget about that era that is very important is the lawmakers. We had 14 Black lawmakers in the federal House and Senate. And we had states like Louisiana who nearly filled half of their seats with black lawmakers at the state level. And this was true across other states, uh, You can find amazing photographs of these black lawmakers in Georgia and Louisiana and Virginia and places like that. And uh, those 14 black lawmakers in the federal uh, uh, house and Senate created public education as we know it to be because they knew that they would have to create a public education system in order for their kids to be educated. Those 14 black lawmakers were able to fight on behalf of their counterparts and they were able to create laws that were going to begin to level the playing field. And then Lincoln got shot. And in a rare occurrence, Lincoln, who was a Republican, which was the party of black people at the time, had run with Johnson, who was a Democrat, who definitely was not the party of black people at that time. And so upon his death, Johnson takes office. And Johnson thought that formerly enslaved people were not the people who had received the short end of the stick in the Americas. Johnson thought that the people who had received the short end of the stick were people who grew up like him, poor white people who had been under the foot of the rich white planter class. And so in order to revel in his victory of now being on top, What Johnson did was if you were a part of the Confederacy and you wanted to join into the union, especially those who have been in politics who wanted to get their seats back, they had to come and get a personal pardon for him. And part of what they got with that personal pardon was 40 acres. Now, where do you think he was gonna get the 40 acres? from the formerly enslaved people who had been receiving it through the Freedmen's Bureau. And so you began to see outrage. And not only did you see outrage amongst the African-American people who were trying to figure out why their land was being taken, you began to see a bubble of the poor white farmers and sharecroppers in the South, feeling like this was now their time to make America great again and take back what was theirs and avenge what they thought they had been destroyed of via the civil war. And this is when you start to see things like the Tulsa race riots rosewood the 90 sharecroppers who were killed in wilmington north carolina this is when you started to see savvy moments of taking back land also in shortly later years through eminent domain which is why seneca village a community of african americans and poor uh, irish immigrants was then taken and became What you know today to be Central Park. And I can name over 90 other instances like this. And there was a sense of lawlessness that began to occur. Sound familiar? A sense of lawlessness of those who had been on top, feeling as if though In order to share space with someone else, something must be being taken away from them. Again, sound familiar? And in this lawlessness, the answer was not to deal with the wreckage of the Ku Klux Klan, not to deal with the wreckage of the economic torment of black people, but to create laws to put black people back in their place. These were the campaigns. These were the campaigns that journalist Ida B. Wells, you guys should look her up if you're not familiar with her work. She's an iconic black journalist of that time. These are the narratives that Ida B. Wells was fighting against in print, was the fear of the scary black rapist killer mugger thief. There is actual documented massive amounts of propaganda that went out to let you know that the issue was the scary Black people. And in that, laws started being created at both the state level and at the federal level to combat the big fear, which was the scary Black freedman. The reason we have to deal with these truths that happened during Reconstruction is because many of these laws are still on the books and the training in our policing associated with these laws is still the same system. The viewpoints of the lawmakers and the law enforcers has not changed. And this is not theoretical notion. These laws are on the book. You can research these systems. Between the 1920s and the 1960s, in order to rebuild the nation, the federal government understood that the fastest way to grow the economy and to build the middle class was through home ownership. So the U.S. government underwrote $200 billion in home lending. 98% of that went to white people, 2% went to everyone else. Now back to the law. It was legal to put in a lease or a deed that these homes, that were building the middle class could not be sold to Negroes. I wish I was at my office. I actually have one that I could show you, but I'll, I'll make a copy of it and um, send it in so she can email it to you guys later. It was legal to not sell homes to African-American people homes that were being bought with american dollars that their tax money was being bled into that they did not have resource or access to but it was legal to put in a document that you couldn't sell a home to them and what we got instead was welfare systems and section 8s, and hudson systems that did not begin a road to ownership. It actually just continued on a theory of government control of black and brown bodies and poor bodies, to be honest. And so now in this time where we're having this conversation about teaching critical race theory in schools, I say to that, we never taught critical race theory in schools. We've never actually taught the full gamut of American history, because this is not African-American history. This is American history. These are the truths, good, bad, or indifferent about the systems that were put in place to maintain an economic system that was originally rooted in making sure that there was a plethora of wealth generated by one group of people by not allowing another group of people to participate. I'm sure many of you have seen my viral video in which I talk about the monopoly system and how if I played monopoly with you right now, and for 287 rounds, I didn't allow you to play at all. And not only would I not allow you to play, but I would force you to play on behalf of me so that as we played the game, you only played at the benefit of me. And that for every round as I got tired, and the next generation of my family sat down and played. They had the benefit of me having full control of the board and the game and that your descendants would play on behalf of my descendants. Now, once that nearly 300 period was up of you not being allowed to play at all and you having to play on my behalf and your descendants having to play on my behalf, after that, I allowed you to play, but I will tell you to catch up. But at this point, the only way that I could catch up is if you shared the wealth. Because if you now at this point are sitting there with all of the properties, all of the houses, all of the hotels, all of the community chess cards, every dime in the Monopoly bank, and I say, you can play now, catch up. How can you win? You can't win. The game is fixed. So now, and you trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and utilizing the skills that you had, if I just decide I don't like the way you're playing, I could burn your town without consequence. Maybe you got lucky and you got one of those purple, uh, you know, pieces on the board. And if I decided that there was something that upset me about the way you played, that I could just take that card and burn it. And there was gonna be zero consequence for me at the legal system the first thing you're doing is you're building mistrust in the legal system. So none of the descendants of the people who've had to play on behalf of other people are now gonna trust the legal system. Not if in the game, you can burn my card and feel zero consequence and actually rebel in it and actually have it make front page news with you proudly standing there with your shotgun, you are teaching generation after generation after generation after generation to not trust that the system will do right by them. And when you build continual generations that believe that the legal system is not to be trusted, that it is not to our benefit, that it does not work on our behalf. Why would you expect them to respect the law? Why would you expect them not to do whatever it takes for them to survive? Even if that is in direct contradiction to the law, the law doesn't work for them anyway. That's what you taught them. That's what you modeled. So now we've played 50 some odd rounds of complete injustice. Now we're in civil rights. We're playing complete injustice. And keep in mind, most of the time when you saw lynchings, you were not talking about people who were day-to-day workers, a large portion of towns that were burned, of lynchings that occurred even in the civil rights era. So now I'm talking the 50s, the 40s, 50s, and 60s. We're usually people who are making a lot of noise. So you're talking ministers, shop owners, people who were in process of building generational wealth, whose houses, businesses, churches would be burned when they were hung. I know this is very difficult to hear. This is not light on the pallet. This is not for the sensitive at heart. Neither was it for the people who lived it. Many of which contrary to popular belief are still with us. Many more contrary to popular belief who are still in office. If you can reconcile with the fact that John Lewis was hosed and beaten and bitten by dogs, and illegally jailed, then you have to use their God given common sense to know that someone sitting across from him in that congressional house was part of a family that hosed, that hung, that sent biting dogs. And this is the legal system we're asking black and brown people to trust. These are the lawmakers we are asking black and brown people to trust. These are still the unchanged laws on the book that we are asking black and brown people and red people to trust. If I was in an abusive relationship with a boyfriend and you are my bestest girlfriend, and every time I took him back, I said to you, it's gonna be different this time. You would fear for my safety, unless you saw that person actually doing the work to make changes, you would fear for my safety. So we, if we are not actually tackling these laws if we are not digging through the law books at the federal, state, city, county level to see the remnants of America when we were at our worst and removing them and digging into why these laws were made and digging into how they disproportionately affect marginalized people, yet we are still asking people to trust this system to trust these laws, to trust these lawmakers, to trust these law enforcers. What you're really asking people to do is to not trust their own good, clean common sense. especially when these atrocities that we talk about that everyone wants to reboot back to slavery, when we have situations like the Tuskegee experiment and the attack on MOVE that happened as recently as the 80s in my lifetime, in your lifetime. When you can watch a young man with nothing but a drink and Skittles, walking home, and a neighborhood watchman whom the police dispatch told multiple times to not follow and engage the young man, murder him in cold blood and go home. When you can watch people taking to the streets, get shot with rubber bullets, sprayed with pepper spray tear gassed, taken to jail, called terrorist for fighting the system that still has not rectified with this past and it's present. Being treated like the scum of the earth and someone can, another group of people can storm the Capitol and stand in the rotunda of the Capitol with a Confederate flag, which in and of itself is a treasonous act and be called good people. And yet you still want young people to trust this system. The only way the law is gonna regain the trust of the people of black people, brown people, poor people, women. It's to start to re-examine the law. It's to begin to re-examine the law. Look at what's good and gut out what's bad. See what still makes sense in the time in which we live in now and see what doesn't. Look at who's sitting in a seat with these old ideas and vote them out. And we cannot be fearful or go gently in the night because people are dying. So if you guys have any questions.
0: Thank you so much, Kim, that last sentence was powerful. I wrote it down, we we cannot be fearful or go in the night because people are dying. And so what I I would just to kick off the questions and we're at 1119, so we have about 10 minutes for questions and I am monitoring the chat. So if folks have questions that they wanna put in the question answer um, box, I'll go ahead and um, monitor that. And so a couple of things. So what 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 can folks in legal services that are working with low-income people, um, low-wealth people to work on things like, you know, housing, um, benefits. And it's interesting that you talk about, you know, home ownership versus things like welfare and Section 8, because we do, you know, truth be told, again, the conference is called It's Time. So we're going to have some real conversation. You know, we do, we do a lot of work around folks um, who are trying to, you know, maintain their different benefits, their welfare benefits, or they're in a section eight unit and you know the landlords. So what, kind, what, what do you think that we should be doing? How should we shift um, the work that we do to move folks in more of a direction of self-sufficiency and home ownership? And what do we do as folks working in legal services to not be fearful or um, as you said, um, or go
1: gently in the night because people are dying? What can we do? Well, first of all, I think that it is still housing is a is a very critical and and like sensitive place for for poor people. So I think continuing on the path that you guys are on in terms of making sure that people are able to receive their benefits and get what it is that they need to do to be able to put put a roof over their family's head is is fine, and that should be content continued, but I think that it is multi-tiered, right? So I think that at the same time in which we are making sure people are receiving their benefits and getting what they're supposed to get, there also needs to be resources available for for, for direction and first-time home buying, right? And so, I think that you couple a lot of these programs and I think this also still needs to happen in these programs that you guys are fighting and you know like section eight and things like that That they should also have this there should be resources that assist people in first-time home buyer most people are uneven aware of what their credit would have to look like in order to purchase a home for the first time how much money they would need for a down payment to purchase a home and how realistic that is for them right so also you have to do do the due diligence with them to understand will they be able to afford the maintenance of the home and so a lot of times what we're looking at is people saying I'm never going to be in a position to be able to repair a water heater if that happens and I don't have a landlord so that's why it has to be multi-tiered. We also have to look at trade education. Trade education is one of the most underrated things that we have. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of jobs every year that go unfilled because it requires a six to nine month trade certification that people don't have. And we keep telling everybody that the only pathway to success is via a college education, but that is an extreme amount of debt to actually be asking everyone to take on, especially when that may not be the route or path for everyone. So how are we looking at career training as it is coupled with home ownership because guess what if you get someone certified in plumbing they will be able to afford a home if you get someone certified as an electrician they will be able to afford a home here in Atlanta we have a large film community we have lots of films that get made here most people don't even know that when you're watching the credits on the movie that a gaffer is just an electrician someone with someone with an electrician certification can get a job as a gaffer on a set making somewhere between three to four thousand dollars a week which would more than put them in a position to be able to afford a home especially if they had access to to first-time home buyer programs
0: thank you Um, We have a comment here. I just want to comment. You are an amazing and powerful storyteller. I was moved by every single word. Thank you. you. Um, We have another question. Are there two to three priority areas you would suggest focusing on in terms of changing laws currently on the books that impede efforts to undo structural racism?
1: Oh yes, I love this question. Okay. (laughs) First of all, run. Some of you on this call will have to run, you will have to run for office and we will also have to build community around people that we are placing in these seats that actually have the agenda of the people at the forefront, um, I want you guys to all write write this name down uh, Rudy Lozano. Rudy Lozano, senior Rudy Lozano is one of my greatest influences, because what he did was in the 70s and 80s, in the city of Chicago, he formed the Black and Brown Coalition, and the Black and Brown Coalition went into Black and Brown communities and found people in that community who they knew would properly represent the people. They would go in there and say, who's the store owner who gives everybody credit? Who's the minister that everybody listens to? Who Who is the neighborhood sage that everyone sits on their porch? And they would find those people, and they would put the power of the Black and Brown coalition behind that person and they would run those those people and they were winning they were flipping they were flipping seats and their biggest win came when they were the engine behind making harold washington the first black mayor of chicago and so that's part of it is that we have to We got to get the like career politicians out of those seats and we have to run people from those communities in those communities who are going to do right by people in those communities. I would say that that is step one. I would say step two is we have to teach civics in school because we have to teach people how to show up, be heard, and take advantage of their citizenship when it comes, um, to civics, there is there's an amazing video, and I I will send it to you so you could I'll send you a list of things that you can send out to everybody. There was an amazing video of a young man, Yusuf, in Syracuse, New York, who by himself, one person, stood there with graphs and charts and got and got the police. To- in Syracuse to reallocate funds um, got got the city council to reallocate funds from the police back into the community and that's just because he understood civics and understood the power of going to those meetings speaking up having a petition having the facts and knowing what he can do so we have to engage in our city council meetings because guess what a lot of people don't realize the biggest thing your politician does is maintain budget It is one of the biggest thing that they do is maintain budget. And you need to show up and tell them how you want that budget handled. The the third and last thing that I will say that we have to do in order to change those laws is first we have to teach them. Because people don't even know, you can't get the community behind you if they don't know which laws that they're actually fighting against. And my whole thing is lower your expectations on what you expect for people. Make it easy and simple for them. Create a graphic that can be posted on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and that says what the law is, why it's bad, and what are the next steps you need from everybody to help you support it, whether it's sign a petition, show up for a meeting, or call their representative.
0: Thank you, Kim, that community kind of lawyering piece and really putting the community at the center of what we do also is kind of what I'm hearing from what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, another question, I'm um, working in legal aid, there's often an assumption that because you work with individuals of low income and individuals of color, you are immune to biases. What's your suggestion for these individuals who have this aura of privilege?
1: Well, first of all, there is an amazing book by um, Layla Layla Saeed called Me and White Supremacy. Um, It is both a book and it also comes with a workbook that you could purchase separately. A lot of times what what we don't do is do the inner work to grapple with our own implicit biases. And guess what? Just because you're Black doesn't mean you don't have implicit biases against marginalized Black people. Let me say that again just because you're black or a person of color does not mean that you also cannot have implicit biases against impoverished people because people always laugh at me because I say I grew up code switching but not the way that you think not between black and white worlds I grew up code switching between the hood and bourgeois black people and so I think all of us doing the work to fight against what has been programmed into us to view about lower income people is important. So Layla, um, Layla, uh, Layla Assad is her name and the book is called Me and White Supremacy and there is a workbook that comes with it. I give it as gifts. I buy the set and I give it to people as gifts. The other thing is a lot of times people are afraid to have group, right? You have group for everything else. You have, we have, we have group for people who have lost their parents, which we need. We have group for people who have all connected and, and, and fought cancer. I think there is nothing wrong with, if it's okay with the people that you, you know, get approval first but sometimes it might be good to have a group about implicit bias and bring in a person like me or bring in a person like Sonia Renee Taylor and you have group for a month, every Thursday, four day, four day, uh, you know, four times in a month and have these conversations, bring in experts that can assist with pushing these conversations. We talk about sensitivity training, but sensitivity training, a lot of times is a one day workshop that doesn't allow you to really unwrap the, the issues that have led to your to your viewpoint, and so I think now creating these groups, and you know what, you know what the the best secret way to do that is, is to start a book club, start a book club, and that way I found as an author when I went to high schools because I predominantly work for write for teenagers. I find when I went to high schools, especially when I went to predominantly white high schools and they had my novel that they could use as a tool to separate themselves from the situation, but identify some of their own bad behavior in the character and work that out through asking me questions about the character, but it was a huge help to them.
0: Thank you. Yeah, we don't, we don't talk a lot about how we engage with young people in the community. So that's something that we should definitely continue to talk about. Um, how to, and then we'll, this will be our last question, and then we're going to take a short break, and then we have um, an hour with, with with Kim from twelve to one um, for folks who want to h- ask more questions and hear more from her. So this last question is: How do you recommend teaching the U.S. history, more commonly known as critical race theory, to others?
1: I think that the first thing we have to do is take the stronghold. Okay the biggest and first thing we have to do first is stop allowing Texas uh, and the Texas um, uh, textbook printing system to be the only source for all of our school districts. They have clearly not gotten it right. There are textbooks that you can find that have slaves listed as indentured servants. So we have to take the power out of Texas in terms of textbook print. That's one. And so we have to break up that monopoly and diversify where schools, school boards, and school systems can order their textbooks from and what can be inside of those textbooks. That's step one. The second thing is we really need to utilize young adults and middle grade um, novelizations of these lived experiences. There's an amazing website called we need diverse books.org. We need diverse books.org is an organization that has, um, books that are written fiction and nonfiction books that are written by authors of color, queer authors, um, um you know, um, authors of all walks of life, um, who have, Different abilities and things like that. And it is just a laundry list of books that can assist in this conversation. There's, they can't, no one tells you what books to assign. You have about two or three books a year that you have to assign, and then you got a lot of flexibility in what you can put in kids' hands to read. We need diverse books dot org is a great resource for finding books dealing with these conversations all the way from picture books to kindergarten on up through YA for teenagers so I think that we should be utilizing that list in terms of book assignment in school and I think that the third thing goes back to what I've been saying this whole time fight 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 the secretary of education is one of the people who walks around scot-free without pushback but we're yelling at the president every day And we're upset about critical race theory, but has anybody called out the secretary of education? Has anybody asked for that person to give a press conference? I don't think we have.
0: All right. Well, I think what we'll do is um, end here. Um, Thank you, Kimberly, you dropped a lot of nuggets today. Um, One thing that stood out to me Um, as it relates to the work that we do in legal services is thinking about what you said about a system put in place by one group um, and that systems didn't allow others groups to participate. And so just thinking a little bit about that and the people that we serve and the communities that we serve, um, that was something that stood out to me. So I wanna thank you for your time this morning, Kim. Um, Thank you for being here. Thank you for being present. Thank you for opening our eyes to some things that we may not think about in legal services such as the criminal system and how that plays out. Um, because the folks that we see in front of us, oftentimes they're having civil they're having civil legal aid issues and they're also having criminal issues. Not all the time, but there's an intersection between those two systems that I don't think we think about a lot. So thank you for bringing that to the surface and helping us think about that because as folks working in the social justice space, we need to understand the full experience, not just from the perspective that we're looking at, but what what the whole whole story. And so you helped us um, peel back the layers and you told us the whole story. And so what we're gonna do now is end this session, take a short break so that people can grab a bite to eat. Um, You could take a break and we'll come back at 12 from 12 to one and have more of an informal session for folks who wanna maybe ask a few more questions and hear more from you up and more up close and personal from you. Um, So with that being said, we're gonna go ahead and end the session and I'll see um, some of you back at noon. And for those of you who are participating, you can go right back to the website Um, and just click on the access button and you'll be brought right into the session with with Kimberly at noon. So we'll see you all then. And I hope everyone enjoys the rest of the afternoon and the rest of the conference. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.